Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. Did you know that the risk for gestational diabetes is more than two times higher with PCOS than in the general population? Since I focus on restoring regular menstrual cycles and improving fertility with my community, the good news is that many of them do get pregnant. The bad news is that then they find themselves scared of getting gestational diabetes or diagnosed with gestational diabetes and not really knowing what that means for them or for their baby. So today I brought in an expert in gestational diabetes. I would arguably say she is the expert in gestational diabetes. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She is co-founder of the Women's Health Nutrition Academy and the author of two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily's best-selling books have helped tens of thousands of mothers and babies and are used in university-level maternal nutrition and midwifery courses and have even influenced prenatal nutrition policy internationally. I have so much respect for the work that Lily does to bust myths and challenge the status quo. Let's get started. Welcome, Lily. I am so excited and so grateful to have you here. Uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So like you, I'm a registered dietitian. Um, I'm also a certified diabetes educator. And I've really focused most of my work on prenatal preconception and postpartum nutrition. Um, I know today we're going to talk about gestational diabetes, so that's certainly a, a subspecialty I've focused on. I've had kind of a unique experience in this field in that my work has gone well beyond like the clinical and in-person um, counseling roles. So I've had the opportunity to work at like the public policy level with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program to being brought in on a number of like research and consulting projects related to gestational diabetes. So tackling it from like a couple different angles 
And I feel like that is helpful in that you can see things through a different lens. Like you can see it through the policymakers lens. You can see it from the researchers lens. You can see it from the clinicians lens, from the clients lens. You get to see it from many different angles, which I think gives me a bit of a unique skill set and have had a lot of opportunity really at looking at the strength of the evidence behind various guidelines tends to be the focus of my work and um, why I've written two books on the topic, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, because sometimes we see that there's a lag time between research making it into clinical practice. So it's one thing to look at the available evidence and, you know, from a guidelines perspective and say like, oh yeah, it's fine. Everything's good. It's another thing to see it from a clinician's perspective where you're implementing those guidelines and see wait, this isn't actually working as well as um, these guidelines would have me believe it works. So maybe there's some areas for improvement. Maybe there's some places in the literature that I haven't explored, or maybe there's something physiologically going on that all these other previous research teams didn't take into consideration. So maybe I should look at that a little bit more, right? So that tends to be where my work focuses now, like identifying the areas in guidelines and clinical practice that could use some massaging and uh, update those with, with the evidence that we have available. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize the difference between nutrition in clinical practice versus public health and working with large populations of people and making recommendations for entire groups of people. We've definitely seen a lot of that in this past year with, you know, looking at what's best for you as a person versus what's best for everybody and, you know, right. making these sort of big sweeping guidelines around recommendations for various things. Um, have you actually been able to influence research then? If you've identified a gap, have you worked with researchers to sort of fill in that gap? I have been brought in on a couple different projects. Some of them have not been able to move forward. So for example, there's a number of researchers who have contacted me to try to develop a, like they wanted my input on their study protocol. I'm thinking of two specific teams in particular. None of those research projects ended up being able to get funded. We could talk about that, but they were look, wanted to study low carb for treating gestational diabetes one of the teams was not able to get funded. The other team was not able to get it approved. So then they switched to trying to study postpartum, like nutrition after a pregnancy complicated with gestational diabetes. I don't believe that one was ever funded either. Um, I've also been brought into a project that we completed, but um, they, the study authors never, never brought it to print where we utilized an online learning platform for uh, gestational diabetes. This is actually with some of the people on the evidence-based birth team. So I taught the modules and they got my book and they had several other health, you know, monitoring devices. And we had an online forum and like a way to provide gestational diabetes education in an online format instead of how we currently have it in our health system. It's like you have to meet with somebody individually available in your area and there's like this huge lag time into getting care. So you get diagnosed, say at 28 weeks, and then it takes you like four weeks to get an appointment with the diabetes educator. Okay, now you're 32 weeks. You have eight weeks left to do anything, right? 
So I've worked on a lot of these projects. Not all of them have come to fruition into actually being something that like to have my name on it, <laughs> be in the research. But nonetheless, um, it's been really interesting to see from a research perspective, the many barriers there are to getting this kind of research out there. There's a lot of things that remain understudied, right? So that that's kind of another like surprise thing that you see in this field is we have these high expectations of as clinicians or consumers, you know, we want to have like the randomized controlled trial, highest quality evidence. And unfortunately, and especially for nutrition, especially for something controversial like gestational diabetes, anything that changes the diet in pregnancy is highly controversial for you know, ethical reasons. We don't want to do anything that could potentially hurt mom or baby. These often remain understudied. So it is what it is. Yeah. You know, we deal with that a lot in PCOS as well. You know, even though, you know, it's 10 to 20% of women, which is, you know, five to 10% of the population, the amount of funding uh, through the NIH that's allocated to PCOS research is 0.1%. Yeah. Um, and it just makes no sense when it's such a large chunk of the population who's dealing with this yeah. issue. Um, you know, I have my suspicions as to why, why women's health research is maybe less funded than some other conditions, but you know, it's frustrating to not really have control over it. And especially to have gone through the process that you did where, you know, you're excited about getting this research done and then it just never gets off the ground because there's no money there. Yes. It's been a big challenge. So we do the best we can, right? <laughs> yeah. With what we have, it's like the, we take the available evidence and, you know, clinical judgment and clients goals and all of that. And that's really the definition of evidence-based medicine. It's not just randomized controlled trials. Exactly. I think that's sometimes missing from the clinician um, standpoint as well. It's like, well, the guidelines say this, but you're like, but you're doing that in practice and your client's not responding. So this is the case where you use your clinical judgment to make adjustments to the plan, right? You can't meet. It's like, we all agree that there's no one size fits all in nutrition. And then like people get upset when the guidelines like, well, we can't go different than the guidelines. It was like, well, the guidelines are meant to be like very broad sweeping, essentially one size fits all, but there's always an acknowledgement that you can adjust those as needed. So as a clinician, I think we need to give a little more like in the pants for dietitians to kind of take the onus and actually, you know, adjust these plans and guidelines as needed to fit what you're actually seeing in, in practice. Um, that's kind of our job. Otherwise that you wouldn't need us. Yeah. I think, you know, some of the, the topics in the EAL, for example, which is the evidence analysis library that dietitians are supposed to consult when making recommendations. Some of those topics haven't been, you know, edited or looked at in decades. And, you know, there's been research happening all that time that could yeah. be contributing to the body of what we know or don't know. How did you end up specializing in prenatal and postpartum nutrition? Was that something you were always interested in even during school or did that kind of come later? It was always a sort of side interest of mine. I actually thought I would um, specialize in like fixing the school lunch program because when I first started, 
we were seeing this like rise in the childhood obesity epidemic. And I was like, oh my gosh, these terrible school lunches are to blame. And they're certainly not helping, but I sort of fell into the gestational diabetes stuff by accident and opportunity became available to work with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, um, the LA Biomedical Research Institute, and the focus was gestational diabetes. I was like, well, this sounds cool. It was part-time. I could like kind of build it in around what I was already doing. And that's when I learned that, you know, children born to mothers with poorly controlled blood sugar in pregnancy can face up to a six-fold increased risk of type 2 diabetes or obesity by the time they turn 13. Now there's some research showing that could be a 19-fold increased risk, actually. So huge. And that's when it all like clicked to me. And I was like, oh, like, because we had lots of junk food in like the 80s and 90s also, but we didn't yet have this surge in childhood obesity and diabetes. I mean, it was certainly starting, but it's like, okay, this is making sense. If the child's metabolism was programmed in utero by maternal elevated blood sugar, they're, they're pre-programmed to have metabolic issues and blood sugar issues later in life. Like this makes sense. They're basically like set up to be insulin resistant. Like this is not fair. You know, it's not just a matter of, you know, they're drinking too much soda and not exercising enough. I mean, those things play a role, but this fetal programming idea was pretty new to me. And that, that really spoke to me because gestational diabetes is the most common pregnancy complication by far. And it, it is rising in prevalence really in concert with the overall rise in prediabetes and type two diabetes. And, um, this is something that we can do. It's a two birds with one stone situation. You can help a mom have a healthier, lower risk pregnancy, hopefully a lower risk birth, help her have a healthier baby. And that baby also has, is really set up for a healthier metabolism and, and healthier, really lifetime of health. That's what has kept me in the field. I certainly was kind of like thrown into it a little bit by accident. And then it definitely became a, a, a passion of mine. Yeah. Epigenetics is so cool. I mean, it's a little disheartening to think that there are some factors that may be affecting our own health that we had literally no control over, such as, you know, what our moms did or didn't do while pregnant. Um, I was born in the seventies. So, uh, lots of cigarette smoke around me as a child, lots of, uh, and then of course the eighties with the, uh, snack wells phenomenon that, that happened when that was demonized and everyone was eating snack wells because they were quote unquote healthy because they were, they were fat free, low fat. Yeah. (laughs) I, I still, it's so funny. I still hear that narrative from my dad sometimes. I had to do like a breakfast intervention on him because he was eating, he was having like 12 ounces of orange juice, two English muffins, a piece of fruit. And it was just like, but it's, it's fat-free. Oh, and the the sugar-free creamer, the fat-free creamer in his coffee. And he was having like two of those. And I was like, dad, you're having like (laughs) over a hundred grams of sugar before 8am. Like this is not good. You know, it's, it's easy to do. And he just, you know, he had it in his head. He was like, it's fat free. It's good. I'm like, dad, this is why your doctor's on you. <laughs> you know? I know. And, and it's hard because it's all been programmed into us for decades. And so, you know, artery clogging saturated fat, right? It's just like that just rolls off the tip of our tongue, even if that statement is not actually 
factual. We have a lot of evidence to the contrary. We should be saying like artery clogging sugar and refined carbohydrates, right? But but we don't do that. Yeah. I still get clients, you know, where I'm doing a diet recall on them and I'm, you know, what's what's a typical breakfast look like for you? And it's like, oh, I eat four egg whites with vegetables. And, and I'm like, tell me why you're eating egg whites. <laughs> and they're always, they always bring up the cholesterol. And I'm like, you're missing out on so many nutrients yeah. in those. I yolks. know. <laughs> I know. And even conventionally, they've taken out cholesterol as a nutrient of concern. The American Heart Association quietly took out their recommendation against eggs, but they really didn't publicize it. Like they could have publicized this and gone out with big press releases. It was very, very quietly done, which is really unfortunate because we have a lot of people in this like, you know, age 60s, 70s, 80s age group, plenty younger than that as well, who still like take that advice to heart, even if it's, you know, no longer known to be quite accurate. Yeah, it's true. You know, I think as dietitians, we're, we're always on top of when the most recent guidelines come out and we're always scouring them for, you know, what's different this time than last time. And so, you know, definitely picked up on that no longer a nutrient of concern, but that was not something I saw on the nightly news for sure. Yep. So what inspired you to write Real Food for Gestational Diabetes? Because that was your first book. Correct. Yeah. So that was really a response to what I saw in clinical practice and what I saw work. So the, we have to kind of rewind because there's a lot of different opinions on pregnancy diet or just diet in general, how many carbs you should eat or whatnot. From the conventional guidelines, they recommend for gestational diabetes for pregnancy, no less than 175 grams of carbohydrates per day. And I used that in clinical practice at first because those were the recommendations. I kind of made the assumption that they were based on high quality evidence and lo and behold, like more than half of my clients' blood sugars did not improve. Sometimes they actually got worse. So I was like, what is happening here? I actually already had been eating kind of ancestrally, somewhat experimenting with low carb already. Um, I have a history of going into reactive hypoglycemia really easily. And so um, all those years of oatmeal for breakfast, which I was like diehard and I did it so well, I soaked my oats and they were steel cut and I had protein in there and nuts and all the things. Um, it, it was a mess <laughs> for my blood sugar. Now I know after wearing a CGM why that is and how severe my uh, spike and reactive hypoglycemia actually was. But nonetheless, um, I just assumed, you know, with, with but okay, these guidelines are based on something solid. And yet what I was seeing in practice wasn't lining up, it wasn't working. And so I did a pretty extensive research to see, would it be safer to go slightly lower carb? You don't have to go freaking keto necessarily, but like, do we need to be giving somebody with gestational diabetes, which translates to carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy, a high carb diet, you know? If they failed a glucose tolerance test of anywhere from 50 to 100 grams of sugar, and we're now giving them a meal plan that has like 50 to 75 grams of carbs per meal, like why are we expecting their blood sugar to do anything but spike? I mean, this only makes sense. That's exactly what the lab test told us. 
So all the red flags went up. Um, I did a pretty extensive amount of research and just sort of slowly started shifting um, what I was doing in practice. So really basic, you know, like, okay, your blood sugar is high after this meal. We'll just take one of your carbohydrate servings, you know, about 15 grams of carbs out of that meal, boost it up with a little more protein, a little more vegetables and see what happens. And like the majority of the time they were able to control their blood sugar just fine. Um, we weren't going crazy, crazy low carb, as a lot of people will will assume. We were just helping them eat to the meter. So you don't have to have your three or four servings or five servings of carbs at the meal. If it's spiking you, maybe your body really can only tolerate two servings of carbs. Let's make up the additional calories with extra protein, not take the fat off because there's good nutrients in your whole food protein sources that contain fat. Um, give you plenty of vegetables. And for the majority of my clients, their blood sugar um, improved dramatically. Of course, you're always going to have, you know, scenarios where somebody needs insulin or medication, and that's fine. But we certainly lessened the number of women who needed insulin and medication. And those that did often needed a lower dose or only needed it at night for their fasting blood sugars, but their mealtime blood sugars were great. This was all like great in our practice and in the hospital where most of our clients gave birth because suddenly they didn't have gestational diabetic babies. Like they didn't have big babies anymore. They stopped having many of the complications in pregnancy. We weren't treating preeclampsia as often. We certainly were way down on our prescription for insulin and medication. Um, we didn't have like the macrosomia or all of those situations that are sort of typical complications of gestational diabetes happening. Unfortunately, like that remains controversial. It's really, I don't think it's that controversial and I don't think it's rocket science, but doing anything that's different from the guidelines is scary to people. So when I branched out from, you know, that style of practice and started taking my own clients um, and teaching people online about gestational diabetes, it was like I was getting inundated with you know, but my, my clinician told me to do blah, 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 blah. But I heard you need to do da, 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 but it's only safe to do, you know, you have to do 175 grams. You can't go less. I have to go on insulin. And it was like, okay, I need to just write this all out. I need to collate all the evidence that I've already done and like put it into writing. So it's out there as a resource. I didn't know if anybody would read it or not. It was just like, I'm going to put this out there because I'm tired of having so much resistance to something that seems so common sense and like obvious. I mean, granted, I had done so much research. Not everybody has done that research, right? So like they don't know they're still under the guise that, you know, you need a minimum amount of carbs or else something terrible is going to happen. So that's really why I wrote it. It was like I was I was tired of the bad advice that was circulating around. And I knew we could like, I knew a lot of clinicians were secretly recommending low carb, but would never admit it publicly because it's so controversial. And it's like, okay, here's the evidence. Maybe your, your team or your you know, clinic where you're working at will allow you to update your handouts to not be super high carb anymore. And then it just sort of spread like wildfire. It was kind of surprising. I didn't really expect it to take off, but people really took to the book because the advice is not extreme quite grounded in evidence and it simply works. So that's why, that's why it was written and, and, you know, everything else is history. So that was put out in uh, 2015. Yes. Yeah, so we're on almost going into like seven years since um, it was released. And since then the Czech Republic has 
updated their guidelines on gestational diabetes. They did that in 2016. They reversed their guidelines from a minimum. Theirs was 200 grams of carbs per day. Now they have a cap, a maximum of 200 grams of carbs per day and instead like promote a a lower carb intake. And they've seen a more than 50% reduction in their need for prescriptions for insulin or medication and much better birth outcomes. So slowly but surely it's spreading. I don't know if it'll ever change in the US, but I'm certainly always trying to be a voice of reason at various, you know, conferences for diabetes educators and dietitians just saying like, hey, you don't even have to go low carb, just like lower glycemic. And also there's no evidence that you need a minimum of 175 grams. So just throwing that out there. <laughs> you take with it what you will. Yeah, I just got chills when you shared those numbers about the Czech Republic. I mean, just the sheer impact that you're making globally on women and their their babies' health. You know, do you want to talk a little bit about the definition of low carb, which I think a lot of people don't realize that in most studies, low carb is defined as less than 40% of daily calories from carbs. So if we're looking at a 2000 calorie a day diet, then that's exactly in line with the Czech Republic's recommendations to stay below 200 grams. We're not talking about going down to 20 grams or 50 grams a day because that has its own challenges in terms of meeting nutrients. But I think there's a little bit of confusion about the use of that term low carb and what it actually means and how low you really have to go to see the benefits. And it's not as low as you would think. It's not the 400 grams that are typically eaten on the standard American diet, but you know, there's, there's plenty of room. Um, you know, we see you share your meals on Instagram and I definitely bookmarked your, your sourdough bread recipe to try soon. Cause That's definitely, I hope it works out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of misconceptions, you know, that a dietitian's definition of low carb or a ketogenic diet is a lot different than the general public's definition of either of those things. And so when people hear me, when I'm like, the minimum is 175 grams, they're like, wait, what? That's so high, you know, because in their mind, they think if I'm saying low carb, then it must be like less than 50 grams of carbs a day. It's like, I've actually, I've never personally, while somebody might choose to do that, I've never personally said you need to eat less than 50 grams of carbs a day in pregnancy. That's a really, really hard to do. That's hard to do as a general adult. You know, if you're actually like, if your definition of, of 50 grams of carbs is taking into consideration all of the carbs you're eating, not just 50 grams of your starchy, bready kind of foods, that's a different thing. You can eat a diet that's pretty low in starchy, bready foods and still eat easily 100 grams of carbs a day, right? So it's like, how, like, what's your definition? How are you tracking? How are you determining how many carbs you're eating? Because I see people way, most of the time, way underestimating how many carbs they're actually eating. But sometimes it goes on on the flip side if they're like super keto and getting like all high carb sources. So it really depends. There's like, this is why dietitians are are needed to sometimes make sense of all the crazy that's out there. Yeah, I'll, I'll hear people who are following kind of lazy keto or they're 
their definition of keto, which again is not the dietitian's definition of clinical keto. And they're like, yeah, I eat vegetables. And it's the same like three vegetables every day. You know, it's like, okay, you've got lettuce and cucumbers covered. Like where are all your other antioxidants coming from? Yes. You can get yourself. I mean, as with any diet, you can get yourself into trouble. Like you can do a pretty solid nutrient dense ketogenic diet, but it's, it's going to take some work just like doing a, you know, moderate carb real food diet also is going to take some work. Like there are some specific nutrient dense foods you can focus on really like up the ante, you know, um, you can have nutritional gaps on any diet. You can have nutritional gaps on an omnivorous diet, on a pescatarian diet, on a vegetarian diet, on the keto diet. Like you take your pick. They all take a little bit of planning. And yeah, I, I mean, I've had people who are keto and again, sometimes like the diet is actually really solid. Um, and it's a little more moderate carb than actually keto when you run the numbers typically. But then I've also had other people who are doing keto and it's like all packaged processed, like keto snack things. And sometimes those keto items are not even that blood sugar friendly. You know, they'll have some weird modified corn starch converted into fiber sort of ingredients that actually do spike your blood sugar. But it's like, labeled keto like the labeling around keto foods is such a disaster you just really got to be careful when you're planning your diet around things in packages with lots of label claims because sometimes it doesn't live up to what they claim yeah i see that a lot with paleo where someone replaces all of the you know added sugar in their diet with say dates <laughs> Um, yes. You know, and it's like, those are still going to spike your blood sugar. There's still a ton of carbs and a ton of, you know, it's natural sugar. Um, and right. it does come with a little bit of fiber, but it's still like a treat, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Dates are, uh, dates are uh, kind of a glycemic disaster actually. So, and I'm not anti-dates. I think they totally have a place in the diet, but I think like used in the context of sweetening a dessert based around whole foods that has like some nuts or something in it is a good idea. But just snacking on like five dates on by itself is probably going to be a bigger blood sugar spike than most candy. They're, they're really very sweet. I mean, they are, they are nature's candy. <laughs> That's the best way to describe them. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you a little bit more about it later. Um, but I, I definitely noticed myself during my experience wearing a CGM when a, you know, a packaged protein bar, that's not, not an everyday snack for me, but I do occasionally grab a protein bar when I'm running, you know, late for somewhere. Um, and it's one of those whole foods protein bars made with dates had mm -hmm. such a huge spike on my CGM. Um, it was, it was yeah. really impressive. The spike that yeah. it made. <laughs> yeah, they, they do it. I have like my own thoughts on like dates because a lot of people recommend them in pregnancy. I have a blog post yeah. in, in the works on that topic, you know, supposedly helps with labor and there actually is some evidence on it, but um, you do have to take that potential benefit with the data we have on experiencing consistent and high blood sugar spikes during pregnancy and what effect that can have because they do really significantly spike blood sugar. And, and sometimes it's even when they're combined with nuts and things. I did a date experiment actually when I was wearing a CGM as well. And it was a pretty 
it was a pretty big spike. Yeah, the um, the bar made with dates and it had uh, 12 grams of protein. So you can probably guess which which brand of bar I'm talking about had a much bigger spike than six squares of chocolate, which I was just doing yeah. like as an experiment. I was like, let me just keep feeding it chocolate and see what happens. And I had yeah. six, six and it was totally fine. Um, yeah. You know, because well, chocolate's high fat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here I am thinking, oh, I'm getting a great little protein snack here. And yeah, I've, I've moved away from that brand since that experience. Yeah. That's the, the cool thing about CGM. You got some surprise surprises with it. Yeah. So what does the process of look, of getting diagnosed with gestational diabetes look like? I hear, you know, I kind of hear secondhand from my students and clients as they're going through the one hour test and then the three hour test. What does that all mean? So there are different testing options depending on where you live. So um, the U.S. mostly does uh, what you're describing as like a glucose tolerance test as a diagnostic measure. There's different ways to do a glucose tolerance test. So most of the U.S. does a two-step test where they do a glucose challenge or glucose screening test of 50 grams of glucose. That's done any time of day, not fasting, and they check your blood sugar one hour after and see what happens. And then the diagnostic test, if you happen to, quote, fail um, I don't like the terminology, but if your reading comes out high on the one hour test, then they'll recommend you do the diagnostic one to see if it's truly a blood sugar issue or just a fluke. Um, and that one is performed fasting. That's hundred grams of glucose. They check your blood sugar before, and then every hour on the hour for three hours afterwards. And if depends, there's different diagnostic criteria. So by some criteria, you only need one reading high. Other criteria, you need two of those four readings high for it to count as a positive diagnosis. And then in other parts of the world and a lot of places on the West Coast, especially California, where they used our guidelines for the uh, California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, also called Sweet Success, they do a single test at 75 grams of glucose, performed fasting, and they check your blood sugar one and two hours after. And typically, a lot of other countries, most other countries do that 75 gram single test. And typically, the guidelines for that are a little bit more stringent than the three hour test. So you catch some more mild cases, but you don't get as many false negatives. Um, so there's pros and cons to it. But that's, that's the typical way. There are other alternatives available. Um, I do cover those in uh, my second book, Real Food for Pregnancy. Uh, the lab test chapter has some different options and alternatives because not everybody wants to do the glucola glucose tolerance test. So there's options for like screening early in the first trimester, like with hemoglobin A1C, or some people do like a fasted reading or a random blood sugar reading or an alternative to the glucola or home blood sugar monitoring. And any of those also have potential pros and cons. I'm a big proponent of at least doing a first trimester A1C screening because that can rule out if there was essentially pre-existing prediabetes. And by the, those California standards I mentioned, that's actually treated as gestational diabetes. So if your A1C in the first trimester is 5.7 or greater, that's prediabetes. The likelihood that you will later go on to quote, fail a glucose tolerance test is like upwards of 98 percent plus. 
So you may as well start monitoring your blood sugar, do everything you can to keep your numbers within range. And now you have two thirds of your pregnancy to make a positive impact versus waiting until 24 to 28 weeks and having only one trimester left to, to do anything. So I'm a big proponent of early screening, if at all possible. And then I pretty much just lay out all the evidence. Here's your options. You know, you take your pick, but I do think it's important that you choose at least one screening option. Um, I see a little bit of talk, you know, especially in the, the natural birth space of, you know, not wanting to do any sort of screening for it whatsoever. And I mean, that's always a choice too, but there are potential repercussions if you don't actually catch a blood sugar issue. And it's also often very, very treatable. And the majority of the time is treatable with diet and lifestyle choices. So in my opinion, it's like, well, you may as well do everything you can to just optimize your blood sugar management, regardless of a positive or not diagnosis. You don't need an official diagnosis for it to be helpful. We just know women who have you know, uh, lower glycemic variability, fewer spikes and crashes over their pregnancy have a lower risk of a lot of other complications like preeclampsia, preterm birth, uh, large for gestational age baby. Just so many things are, are better off if we just like keep our blood sugar as even keeled as we can. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of like, everyone choose some sort of screening option and everybody think about blood sugar management. It's, it's only going to help. It's not going to hurt anything. I would say, you know, probably the vast majority of people that I work with who have PCOS are already sitting at that 5.7 or above on the A1C test. And I do recommend, you know, having that as sort of a first step with PCOS to see, you know, in addition to other, you know, insulin testing and then further the oral glucose tolerance test, if those are looking a little iffy. So most of them, by the time that they do get pregnant, if that's their goal, they're probably still sitting at around that level, but we've managed to bring it down from where it was already. But, you know, even more argument to get screened, get screened early because it's, it's manageable. And I also just, just wanted to mention the fact that type two or gestational diabetes rather doesn't have a look. Yeah. There are other risk factors for developing gestational diabetes. I mean, I personally, I'm sure you do as well, have known size zero dietitians who end up with gestational diabetes. Twin pregnancies are another uh, risk factor. What are some of the the risks for gestational diabetes? Oh, there's There's many. So you already mentioned PCOS. If there's any history, whether personal or family history of any sort of insulin resistance issues. So PCOS, your mom had gestational diabetes, type two diabetes in the family, being at a BMI greater than even 25, but certainly greater than 30 is a risk factor. Having a previous history of a larger baby there's different definitions of what counts as large and not all large babies are necessarily unhealthy, but sometimes a baby can grow larger in utero because of exposure to high blood sugar. It's not the only potential cause. Um, I want to give all the, like all the disclaimers for everybody who feels self-conscious if they had a large baby, not necessarily a bad thing. It's one potentially identified risk factor for GD. I think that's the majority of it. There's also, you know, any, any particular risk factors for type two diabetes, such as being of an ethnicity where there's higher rates of type two diabetes, 
also is a higher risk for gestational diabetes for all the same reasons as, you know, history of insulin resistance. And another one that always gets people is age, because as the older you get, generally your insulin resistance goes up, but the threshold for age is age 25. (laughs) So it's like very young. Technically by that criteria, you're saying like the vast majority of uh, pregnant women in the U.S. are supposedly at risk for uh, gestational diabetes. And then there's other like less defined risk factors, which you wouldn't see in the guidelines, but certain nutrient deficiencies that can play with your insulin glucose regulation, like magnesium, vitamin D, for example, can certainly be a risk factor. So I think there's probably some people who haven't really you know, thought about this or aren't even really sure you know, hearing that your baby's going to be a little big, you know, may not sound like it's too serious. I mean, absolutely. When you're thinking about where that baby has to come out of um, having a larger baby than you should be, maybe doesn't sound as appealing, but some of these babies end up in the NICU after birth because they're not able to regulate their own blood sugar. They're, they're used to being in this high sugar environment in the womb and then they come out and you know what what sort of happens there right yeah and so yeah to reiterate you know there there's certainly healthy um bigger babies who don't have any issues um however in the case of a bigger baby that's the result of dysregulated blood sugar in pregnancy the reason that this happens is that there's really no like filter that's stopping maternal blood sugar from transferring to baby. It's pretty much like the same levels that you're experiencing, baby is experiencing. So when you get to the point in pregnancy where baby's pancreas is developed enough to produce its own insulin, it starts managing its own blood sugar. And so it's like, okay, high blood sugar is always coming in. It's always producing high insulin levels as a result. So the baby actually becomes insulin resistant um, in utero. And um, they're metabolically adapting to what they're experiencing. Um, They also accrue a larger amount of fat mass. So these babies are larger, not because they're like super well-nourished and exuberantly healthy, which can be the case sometimes for bigger babies, but because they've accrued a lot of fat mass and they're really programmed to be like sugar burners. Technically in pregnancy, not to get too like high level, but technically as you get to the later stages of pregnancy, they start preferentially burning more ketones. They become metabolically flexible, so to speak, where they can burn glucose or ketones because once they're born and the cord is cut, they're going to have to adapt very quickly to burning fat stores. Um, So they're born in ketosis and designed to stay in ketosis. Well, what happens when a baby's a sugar burner? So they're born, their body is adapted to seeing huge amounts of sugar all the time. You cut that umbilical cord and that sugar supply gets cut off, but their pancreas is anticipating that sugar to come. So their insulin production is still high and they, they go hypoglycemic. Their blood sugar drops too low. Um, and that doesn't sound like a big deal for any of us who's like, you know, adult humans who can just eat something and bring our blood sugar back up. But for babies that can actually be, you know, a medical emergency that can require things like a NICU stay or um, some women are like pumping colostrum to help give them like some sort of nourishment right away. Sometimes they treat with formula or, or IV or many different things, but it actually is kind of, kind of not a good thing. Uh, Really babies should be able to adapt to that early postpartum time. They're in 
deep ketosis on uh, especially day two and three, um, as mother's milk starts to transition from colostrum to mature breast milk, which has more carbohydrates in it, more lactose, they still remain in ketosis actually for quite a while, but they're getting uh, more uh, carbohydrates as well. And so if they don't have that metabolic flexibility, so to speak, they have trouble dipping into those fat stores, even though I have quite a bit of fat stores on board, their insulin levels are just too high and it just tanks their blood sugar really fast. So that can lead to breathing issues and, you know, it can be life-threatening. And that all sounds, again, some people think that's not a big deal or what's the big deal of a short NICU stay. And certainly, I mean, that's why we have NICUs in case of emergencies. However, this isn't just a sign of something that's like, that's temporary. We've talked about that higher risk of type two diabetes later in life. This is really a sign that there's a blood sugar insulin regulation issue. And so that, that, can, that can carry forward um, long-term. So what we're really looking to do is to minimize the number and the frequency of uh, blood sugar spikes or severity, I guess I should say, of blood sugar spikes. So the baby doesn't have to adapt to a super high sugar environment. And like I said, that's like really doable actually with food. And sometimes you need some additional help with medication or insulin, but it's really doable with food and a little more movement. Um, a lot of lifestyle tweaks can greatly improve this. And sometimes like to go back to your, you know, your example of breakfast of your dad, sometimes like the difference of swapping out that, you know, English muffin and juice and fruit breakfast to just like, okay, one English muffin or half an English muffin, replace the juice with some whole fruit, add two eggs to it, you know, you have a completely different uh, blood sugar response to that meal, even though it still has some carbohydrates, you're not going to spike nearly as high, and your body's going to be much happier, baby won't experience the huge uh, blood sugar spike either. And it all around, you know, you do that meal after meal day after day for the course of your pregnancy that that adds up to really big positive outcome. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are, in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. You and I have both gotten to experience wearing a CGM and a continuous glucose monitor for those of you who don't know what that is. 
And it was really fun for me. I was super excited about the experience. I didn't get to wear it nearly long enough to experiment with with all of the things. And I will link to your blog article on your experience in the show notes. But what were some of the key takeaways from that experience for you? Because there were definitely some eye-opening surprises for me. Yeah. So um, that was my first time wearing a CGM, the one that I wrote about. I've done it several other times uh, since, including during pregnancy. My goal with that just was to see like, since I'm not really a nitpicker tracker of everything numbers person, I'm, I'm kind of a generalist. It's like, okay, generally, if I eat about this much and then this combination, I feel pretty good. Like I was curious to see, did that actually hold true via blood sugar numbers? Um, so for the most part, for my time wearing the CGM, at least for that experience, I was just eating the way I usually do and seeing what happens. I would say for the most part, it was as I would expect, you know, you eat slightly lower carbs, slightly more protein, your blood sugar's happy, even keeled, energy is good. I found that my blood sugar really seemed to correlate a lot with my like sort of mindful eating observations around how I feel and energy levels and all of that. What I did find interesting is when I ate a little more than I needed to, even if it was a pretty well-balanced meal, but it was like, oh, there's only five more bites. I'll just eat it. Um, That did actually seem to result in a noticeably higher uh, reading after meals. So that was something I found interesting. I found it interesting that um, not all carbs spiked me the same amount. So like potatoes in the context of like cooked with enough fat and eaten in a meal that had protein um, and vegetables and things were fine. Likewise, the sourdough bread that I make was fine. White rice was not so fine. Uh, Takeout Thai food was a pretty decent spike, not like really high. It wouldn't be considered like a pre-diabetic spike, but it was, you know, a higher spike than I would typically get from a meal. And that's A, both the rice um, and B, like a lot of those curries have a lot of hidden sugar. And we don't think about something savory having sugar in it, but they do add a lot of sugar in cooking or even there's, you know, Italian tomato sauces and things that have sugar in it. You don't think about And the final thing, the one time that I actually did like, okay, I'm really going to experiment with this. I had oatmeal for breakfast and did sort of, I even did, you know, pretty small portion, but it was like the suggested meal for pregnant women in the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics (laughs) sample meal plan. I was like, let's just see how this does. And that spiked me a hundred points, which was really surprising. And just for reference, you know, all my other markers of insulin sensitivity, average blood sugar, A1C, leptin adiponectin ratio, you can get into all this complex stuff, all look really, really good on lab results. So I'm not somebody who has pre-existing insulin resistance issues. I also don't eat extremely low carb, so I don't have like a low carb induced temporary insulin resistance thing going on. It's still, it just spikes me a lot. And so we all have different foods that can spike us a lot. And I think that's the thing that is most interesting about checking these things and why I always come back to this concept of eating to the meter. You know, if something spikes you or leaves you feeling not very good, there's a possibility if you're not checking your blood sugar and you just feel icky that it's a blood sugar spike could be something different, but uh, it's, you know, a sign to listen to your body and choose, choose something different. Right. So now like, when I, first of all, I don't even really like oatmeal. So I just don't eat oatmeal. (laughs) It's just like, 
that's not something I'm sad to give up. It's in there if I make an apple crisp or like it makes sense in a particular recipe. I'll have oatmeal raisin cookies every once in a while, right? But like oatmeal for breakfast, I don't enjoy very much. It doesn't leave me feeling good. It's just not my breakfast of choice, you know? Thai food. I still love Thai food. So I'm still going to have Thai food, but I just don't have the rice. Um, sometimes we'll do takeout Thai and I'll cook extra vegetables and serve it over the vegetables. And that tastes better to me anyways. So what's the big deal, right? And that will help kind of mitigate the blood sugar spike. So it's helped me make some like minor tweaks, but it was more interesting just seeing, wow, I've already observed that I don't feel great after eating XYZ. And here it is like in black and white, you know? Yeah. I, I also, you know, similarly, I tried going vegan for a couple of years after college and really was struggling with that reactive hypoglycemia, you know, where it would just come out of nowhere and I'd be shaky. And it was like, like, it didn't matter how many almonds I ate or how much tofu I ate, it was still happening all the time. And so I was just kind of gotten to the point in my life where I know if I have a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast, I'm just going to want to be a slug for the rest of the day. And I'm just going to want to keep eating carbs for the rest of the day. And so I also have kind of settled on this higher protein, higher fat breakfast and lunch, and then always like have a little bit of carbs with dinner. Cause like my adrenals need that in order to wind down for the night. Like I need that signal that it's like, okay, now it's time to, you know, chill out a little bit. I have to say my biggest, well, first of all, it was my experience. I was like, doing a test. So Mm -hmm. it was a little bit weird because I had certain things. I had to eat these muffins on two or three of the days that I was wearing the glucose meter. So it already was like, I don't eat muffins for breakfast. Like it was probably been 20 years since I had a muffin for breakfast. You know, I know that's going to make me feel like crap. I know I'm going to spike and crash, even if it is the quote unquote, higher fat muffin. Um, neither of right. them was good for me. White rice was also a big spike for me. So, you know, mm. that's also something that's like even paired with like shrimp and mixed vegetables, you know, yeah. which is a pretty common takeout meal for me. So I've definitely, you know, looked at the portion of rice that I'm eating or skipping the rice. You know, my big takeaway was how low I am most of the day. I had no mm, idea yeah. I was running so low all the time. It's like, no wonder I'm stre- my cortisol is so high. And, <laughs> you know, so I've sort of consciously incorporated more carbs before I work out. Yeah. I'll have like a crisp bread with nut butter or something. Um, yeah, but the, yeah. the thing that made me bite my tongue, and I, I say this because I am just always so like, oh, you can't get enough protein on a vegetarian diet or your blood sugar is not going to be stable on a vegetarian diet. My literal best meal that I ate was a can of Amy's uh, lentil soup. Just Ah, like a can of soup got me up to a nice range, kept me steady for like a few hours after no spike, no drop. And I was like, wow, lentils, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's all that resistant starch. Legumes tend to be pretty good um, for, for blood sugar readings, really. So yeah, if they work for you and your digestion, not not a bad call. I will say on the CGM, were you using a freestyle Libra? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've talked with a bunch of different diabetes educators about this who have like cross-checked, you know, they wear a Libra and then wear a Dexcom or one of the other ones. The Libras do tend to run on the lower side. And sometimes the sensors can be, 
you know, those ones are factory calibrated and you can't calibrate it with a meter where a Dexcom, you can calibrate it to a, a finger stick to make sure it's actually like the levels are appropriate. Cause I've had some times where I wear a CGM and it's like ridiculously low. It's like, I'm not in the fifties. Okay. Like chill. And so checking with a finger stick sometimes is helpful. Or I've learned if you sleep on it, it'll make your readings overnight look artificially low. So it's not perfect. I think the great thing about CGM, even if it isn't perfect, is you just get to see that the trend lines, even if you're not taking the numbers like exactly to the letter, see the trend lines, see what spikes you, really makes you rise like 50, 60, 80, 100 points, and then see the things that only make you rise 10, 20, maybe 30 points. Those lower rises and what don't make you crash after like that's the big takeaway that I think is helpful for people with CGM if anybody listening happens to do it and then I think also a little caution on CGM is I find that some people who do it get a little bit overly obsessive about like anything that raises my blood sugar at all is bad and then they start defaulting to under eating or like completely taking out something that spiked them at all. And, and I always kind of want to bring home the point. It's not that I think blood sugar spikes are good, but your body also can handle an occasional blood sugar spike. It's not the end of the world. Arguably might be kind of a good thing to maintain a little like variation in your insulin levels every once in a while, like test out the system, you know? Um, but I want to throw that out there because I think some people unnecessarily take that information and go like, really full extreme, either under eating or like take carbs out entirely. And I think it's like everything, like you have to take the information into context and then also like see how you feel. Like I had a couple meals that spiked me into like the 120s or low 130s, but I actually still felt really good. And I didn't have reactive hypoglycemia. I was back to the 110s pretty quickly and down to like fasting range and not a bad time. And I don't think it's, that meal is necessarily worse than a meal that only brought you up to like a hundred. You know what I mean? I think it's like, it's all, it's all okay to have a little variation. Um, I think people get a little crazy and maybe it's the diabetes educator in me. I've just seen like, you know, when you see blood sugars into the three and four hundreds, sometimes it helps you put things into perspective a little bit. Like, okay, if I had a diabetic client with these readings right now, they'd be thrilled, you know? Yeah, really good point too about uh, the information being triggering for some people. I know you're like me, you like data, you like numbers. It just sort of helps inform what we do. It doesn't rule what we do. Um, I do like to, you know, keep tabs on things sometimes. Other things I don't track at all, like food, you know, like I've, I've got yeah. more important things to do with my life than track my food all day, every day. So yeah, if, if you find yourself being too triggered by that kind of, you know, level of information, then, you know, do the, do the screenings another way and don't, don't rely on it too much. Um, but just kind of take it, take it with a grain of salt, like what you were saying and, you know, incorporate what you find helpful, but really go based off how your body feels. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of things in your other book, Real Food for Pregnancy, which is fantastic. Um, I love that book. I, I recommend both books to clients all the time. I want to talk in particular about protein. Um, I know you recently wrote an article on protein requirements during pregnancy. And again, that's one of those areas that maybe 
the guidelines don't necessarily line up with what's optimal. So can you talk about a little bit about how pregnancy protein needs might be higher than what we're told? Yeah. And protein needs just on a general level probably could be a little bit higher for, uh, for everybody. You know, there's different ways to define protein requirements. And I think as dietitians, we get a little pigeonholed into looking at the recommended daily allowance or the RDA, which is um, based on a gram amount of protein per body weight, kilograms of body weight. Technically, there's another way of like defining, you know, adequate protein, which is the acceptable macronutrient distribution range. And that says you can have up to 35% of your calories coming from protein. So anyone recommending a higher protein diet and people think it's like crazy, it's actually like right there in the conventional guidelines as being potentially okay. And I've personally never had a client that got anywhere close to 35% of calories from protein. That's almost impossible to do unless you're living on protein shakes, but certainly more in the like, definitely no less than 15, arguably probably 20 to 25% of your diet as protein is like smack dab in the middle of the uh, macronutrient distribution range and great. As for the RDA though, we have to remember that RDAs were really set at a bare minimum to support life. Like you will not die if you hit the RDA for protein. Will you be thriving is a different question. And the estimates for pregnancy specifically were based on data mostly from adult men. And so, and then adjusted via like body weight and expected um, demands of the fetus and like bodily changes in pregnancy. So they're pretty low. Like the first trimester is the same as uh, non-pregnancy. And then second and third trimester is like a tiny bit higher. Instead of 0.8, it's 1.1 grams per kilo. There was a study in 2015, which was the first ever to directly estimate protein requirements in pregnancy. Um, And yes, that was 2015. So for people who are working with clinicians who might not be like following the research very often, things change. And that study found that um, protein requirements were actually significantly higher than we previously thought. They used a different like goalpost called the estimated average requirement or EAR. EARs are always set lower than the RDA, but nonetheless, by their standards, they found that in the first trimester, you needed 1.22 grams per kilogram of protein. And in latter pregnancy, pregnancy, you needed 1.52 grams per kilo. And if you estimate that up for RDA, you're probably looking at more like maybe 1.8 grams per kilogram, you know, maybe just like, yeah, 73% higher than what we previously thought that you need. So what I have seen in practice is that when clients don't get enough protein, we see a greater propensity for blood sugar issues, as you and I could easily explain by having done our CGM experiments. I see a greater propensity towards blood pressure issues as well. I tend to see higher weight gain. I tend to see more swelling. And then sometimes, and these would be a little more in severe cases of protein insufficiency, you can see um, deficits in fetal growth. So like intrauterine growth restriction, like baby's just not growing very well. So certainly I think you know, most women could benefit from more protein. 
particularly when it comes to pregnancy. So to put those numbers into perspective, um, since not everyone is like familiar with converting kilograms to pounds, and in the US, we measure our weight in pounds, protein requirements, or really any nutrient, like energy macronutrient requirement is calculated based on your pre-pregnancy body weight. So for an example, person who's 150, 150 pounds, 150 prior to pregnancy, that looked like 80 grams or so minimum in the first part of pregnancy and 100 grams minimum in the latter part of pregnancy. And those are really, you know, that's an EAR range. So that's, that's, a, that's a minimum minimum goal. You can go higher than that. First trimester might be tricky. So just do your best to hit that 80 gram mark. Don't freak out if you don't get there. Definitely in later pregnancy, you'll probably have more of an appetite anyways. So definitely aim for that ballpark of like 100 grams. For somebody who's very, very small, you know, they like weigh 100 pounds pre-pregnancy, you're not going to need quite as much, right? You'd want to calculate it based on your body weight. So you're not like trying to hit this unattainable, really high goal. And somebody who might be like really tall and, you know, weighs a lot more, your your goal is going to be bigger. Somebody who's um, really active and has a lot of muscle mass and, and turnover from their workouts and higher energy needs, they're going to need more too. So some of that will take a little finagling um, potentially with, you know, a nutrition professional if you need it. Um, but you can also just base it on, you know, set sort of a basic goal and see how you feel and see how your body responds. Yeah, while we're, you know, kind of on the topic, one of the things that I see you take some heat for on social media. And I always get so angry on your behalf because I'm like, she's just laying out the facts. She's just giving you the facts. Is when when you're talking about some of the potential risks of a vegan diet during pregnancy, you know, and you always frame it exactly like that. Like, listen, these are the nutrients that I I would be concerned about or you should be concerned about. And then it's, you know, up to you to make the decision to continue with that diet with extensive supplementation to meet those nutrient needs or, you know, what, what are some of those risks that you lay out, um, in a, you know, a a hundred percent vegan pregnancy? Yeah. So first of all, you know, as a former vegetarian, I know you're a former vegetarian as well. And I'm friends to many currently practicing vegetarians and vegans. I understand all the arguments for and against eating animals. So I respect your choice, whatever your choice is. That said, there there are considerations, especially in pregnancy, when your baby is reliant on your nutrient intake and your nutrient stores to grow. And I did include a section on this in chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy, like covering some of the nutritional considerations for a vegetarian or vegan diet, because just again, I'm going to go back to the guidelines because you're a dietitian. So we like talk the same language. You know, if you look at like the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics or even the Vegetarian Resource Group or any of these other groups on nutrients of concern for vegetarians in pregnancy, it is a woefully incomplete list. It's actually shockingly outdated. So I'm going to throw that out there to anybody who's just going to come at this with well, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics said that a well-planned vegetarian or vegan diet can meet the needs of nutrients for all life stages, including pregnancy, breastfeeding, infancy, blah, blah, blah. Like I know, and I have read all of their policy papers very, very closely. And it is really worrisome to me that they only call out a select number of nutrients that they do. 
so yes, they give a nod to iron and zinc. Um, they give a nod to vitamin D, which is funny because everybody needs a nod to vitamin D. <laughs> it's less provided by diet and more provided by sun. But none nonetheless, they give a nod to DHA, but they really don't cover the full spectrum of potential nutrient issues to consider. So we have to think, you know, certain nutrients can be missing entirely, vitamin B12. Of course, they do call that one out. Certain nutrients might not be provided in sufficient concentrations in plant foods. So they're in plant foods, but you'd have to eat such a large portion of them that it's actually impossible to meet it from food alone. Um, that would be things like choline, um, glycine, which is a conditionally essential amino acid in pregnancy, um, and vitamin K2, unless you're somebody who eats a lot of natto, which outside of Japan is probably not many people. There's also certain nutrients might not be well absorbed. So that includes iron and zinc. There's a lot of inhibitors to iron and zinc absorption in food, like phytic acid, oxalic acid, and other things that are high in pretty much all the vegetarian sources. And then there's also certain nutrients that might be provided in a form that isn't as well utilized by the body. So you have to rely on your body's own internal conversion of the nutrient. So um, an example of this is omega-3s found in flax seeds, chia seeds, walnuts. Um, the vegetarian sources are in a form called ALA, which your body has to convert into DHA. And even under best case scenario, you're looking at like a three, I think it's a 3.8% or 3.4% conversion. It's not enough. Even if it was like a 5% conversion, it's not enough. Um, you cannot meet the needs of pregnancy or breastfeeding with plant sources alone. So there is a vegan option, but you would have to know that and you'd have to supplement with an algae-based um, DHA supplement. The other example on conversion is uh, beta-carotene, which is stated, you know, can meet all your vitamin A requirements because you can convert it into retinol. Unfortunately, the conversion is really, really low and about, gosh, there's all different estimates, but probably about half the population at minimum has some sort of an issue with the enzyme that converts it called BCMO1. So if that enzyme is not working optimally, you might be in the subset of people that requires a preformed source of vitamin A. That can be met through supplementation if your prenatal has a preformed form of vitamin A, like retinyl palmitate. However, uh, most of the prenatals are solely beta carotene. And there's also some, you know, potential considerations if you're going to take retinol at doses beyond what's in a prenatal, uh, you can run into some issues because there are some considerations with synthetic retinols being linked to birth defects. So those are like the basics just from the micronutrient perspective. From the protein perspective, I lay out a couple other amino acids that can be um, a consideration in my article on protein that seem to be related to Really, it's not that you can't survive without them, but they seem to promote, you know, optimal metabolism and optimal health in mother and baby. So if you're facing a situation like restricted fetal growth, you might want to be thinking about like creatine and carnitine and proline and taurine and some of these other so-called non-essential amino acids that are either mostly or solely found in animal foods that some protein researchers are suggesting might actually be essential, you know? So with nutrition, we make a lot of assumptions about nutrients. We were all taught that there's only nine essential amino acids. Everything else is non-essential. Your body can make all the non-essential ones from those amino acids. 
And there's research suggesting that that's not actually accurate. So, you know, like all things, we have to keep an open mind because sometimes the data changes over time. And when our only source of some of these nutrients happens to be an animal food that, you know, can put us into like interesting and difficult scenarios. Like, for example, I highlighted in a recent research brief on Instagram that there's a role for taurine and vitamin B12 in babies' bone development. There's also a lot of research on brain development, but this particular thing focused on bone development. And it turns out, like, sure, our body can make taurine from other amino acids, but the synthesis of taurine in our liver is reliant on B12. Well, sure, a lot of really well-informed vegetarians and vegans do supplement with B12. However, 60 plus percent of vegetarian pregnant women happen to be deficient in B12. So clearly not everybody is getting the memo. If you don't have that B12 on board, you can't synthesize that taurine. And that impairs your baby's bone development and also their brain development and some other things, right? So it's like, how many little pieces of information do you need to try to keep straight in your brain? And also, how do we actually know the optimal levels of any of those individual micronutrients and in synergistic quantities and the best possible form for your body to utilize? I mean, I'm super nerdy about nutrition and I don't know the optimal levels or synergistic quantities or when to dose them in the day. We, we leave a lot up to guesstimates, really. And so when you can kind of like sit back and like, you know, I'm looking, wow, look at all this new information I just learned about amino acids and pregnancy that I did not know when I wrote Real Food for Pregnancy. But thankfully, because it's omnivorous, all of those amino acid and micronutrient needs were already met by default. But what happens when the people who wrote the guidelines on vegetarian diets and pregnancy are not even aware of that information? They don't mention any, call out any specific amino acids in their guidelines as being of concern. The omnivorous ones don't even talk about glycine, which we know is conditionally essential in pregnancy. Like then what, you know? So it's like how detailed of a look do they really take at all of these things? I feel like a lot of them are kind of just scratching the surface, you know? It's like, okay, if we just check the boxes for calories and macronutrients, and supplement with B12 and algae DHA and maybe some iron if it's needed. Our work is done here. And my question is like, but is it? Is yeah. It? I don't know. I think, you know, we, we don't know the ideal amounts that everybody needs um, to further compound it. The amount that I need may be very different than the amount you need and somebody else needs. Um, right. You know, getting a look at my own genetic SNPs is like, oh, it makes so much sense why I felt like crap on a vegan diet. I can't convert beta carotene. I do terribly yep. at converting AOA. I can't absorb vitamin D. It's like all of the SNPs are there, oh. you know, and, and it, talking about the guidelines, it kind of reminds me of when you pick up a prenatal at a drugstore and you're like scanning the label and you're like, oh, 100% of this, 100% of that. It's got 100% of everything. And you yeah. walk out feeling pretty good that you bought this prenatal. In the meantime, there are key essential nutrients that are like not even included in that prenatal. And I think 
You know, one of the best demonstrations, I I worked on infant formula back in my advertising days, and I was part of the launch in 2006 when we were adding DHA to baby formula. You look back at the evolution of baby formula and we, we thought we knew everything. And it's just like how many things we were missing and how you know, as that oh, knowledge yeah. has continued to evolve, we keep tweaking the formulas to make them more complete. But it's like we were marketing them as complete before, you know, like we don't That's even know. That's a great analogy. We don't even know what we don't know yet, really. Exactly. Or like the RDA, we assume the RDAs are correct, but there's data for vitamin B12, for example. We think the RDAs. 2.4 micrograms in pregnancy and 2.6 micrograms in breastfeeding. But actually there's data suggesting that even for women who meet that, they're deficient and true requirements are actually at least triple that amount. So if you are say a vegan woman who is relying on the B12 in your fortified nutritional yeast and your fortified soy milk to meet your B12 requirements and you're like, okay, well this provides 50% and this provides you know, 25% not provides 25%. I'm good. You might actually not be, there might be a higher ballpark to hit. So, um, and that's, I just love the analogy on the infant formula, you know, what we've learned about like human milk oligosaccharides, or, you know, I think I posted one about all the different types of fatty acids found in breast milk that we just learned about in like 2020, (laughs) you know, it's absolutely wild. So that's why oftentimes I find myself sort of balancing what we know and don't know with, okay, what did all these ancestral cultures do? What were they eating prior to and during pregnancy, really emphasizing what, what's the nutrient breakdown of these shellfish that they thought were so important? Oh, oops, just so happens that the shellfish is like providing all this selenium and iodine for thyroid function and vitamin D and zinc and iron and copper and all this great stuff that your body actually requires in high amounts for fertility and pregnancy. Wow. Who knew, you know, they didn't know the breakdown of those foods, but now we understand a little better why it's important. Yeah. So this has been, I keep you here for hours longer chatting, but I will let you go. Um, Why don't you tell the audience where they can find you and learn more about what you have to offer? Sure. So you can find me on my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com, N-I-C-H-O-L-S. Over there, you can find my blog, a lot of the articles we've talked about today. There's like a vegetarian diet and pregnancy article, the protein requirement article, the CGM experiment article. I'm sure you'll have links or you can use the search function to find those. I do have the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy available free there. I link out to um, both of my books. You could check out my bookshop where I have Real Food for Pregnancy and also an e-cookbook companion to it. As far as social media, I'm most active on Instagram, although certainly not as active as a lot of people are on Instagram. And my handle is the same as my uh, website. So it's at lilynicholsrdn. Again, just because I know we're going to have a lot of dietitian listeners uh, for this podcast as well, I do want to give a shout out to the Women's Health Nutrition Academy that you run in partnership with Ayla Barmer. Um, Really high quality webinars on women's health, hormones, pregnancy, 
Um, I get lots of questions about where can I learn more and you're always um, such a good resource for that. So thank you. I also enjoy your Instagram, seeing your little foraging adventures and (laughs) things you're cooking. It's not, it's not all just nerdy science, but come for the nerdy science day for like. I try to, uh, I try to mix up my Instagram feed with a lot of pictures of food. Um, I think it's important to be, you know, transparent about like what I actually eat and then certainly there's always going to be some level of uh, curating for social media. I'm probably not going to show you my ugliest leftover meal, although I might. <laughs> not everything is pretty on there. I'm not a food photographer, but I do try to give you kind of like real world stuff. So you can see like you know, when we use terms like real food, what am I actually talking about? Like this is what it looks like in real life. It's not complicated, um, not always expensive either. It's often very doable, lazy, throw it in the instant pot, um, have it ready, hopefully not too late for dinner time kind of meals. So yeah, thanks for that. And thanks for the shout out on WHNA. All of our webinars are like 90 minutes to two hours. And it's really a place for us to really nerd out about the research and have all of our like stats and references and stuff all in one place. So Lots of different webinar, on-demand webinar content for you to check out over there. Thank you so much for joining me, Lily. It's been wonderful having the opportunity to pick your brain on all the things pregnancy and gestational diabetes nutrition. Thank you everyone for joining me for this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. See you next time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode, and in the meantime, stay balanced.